Whenever you meet someone, there's always a story behind their eyes. Some parts they would readily share with you, other parts they would rather not. If we heard the full story on people, it wouldn't be long before you heard some brokenness in it. Humanity is full of brokenness and sometimes we'd rather not discuss it or consider it taboo. However, Matthew in today's episode mentions the name of someone in the genealogy of Jesus, Bathsheba, and there's a deeper story behind her name. In today's episode of Groundwork, we will tell her story and see that even in spite of brokenness, God still intervenes. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Daryl Delaney. And Scott, we are in part four of five in our Advent series. And we've been looking at Jesus's genealogy from the book of Matthew. And we realize that there are stories behind these names listed here. <laughs> we noticed that, that Matthew intentionally put the names of five women into his genealogy. And we've been unpacking these stories. Yeah, and it's not too unusual in the Bible to encounter a family tree or a genealogy. You get some of the Old Testament. Luke's got one in his gospel, too. And, you know, most of the time when you read a family tree, your eyes kind of glaze over because it's just name after name. Some of them are hard to pronounce. Well, once in a while, somebody famous pops up, but most of the names you don't know. But with Matthew, uh, he intentionally spiced it up so that if your eyes were starting to glaze over early on, all of a sudden you'd encounter a woman's name, which is weird. And then a woman's name whose story we don't often tell in Sunday school, like Tamar, you know, right. who, who tricked her father-in-law, of all people, into making her pregnant. Or we get Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho. Uh, we get Ruth, who was an outsider from Moab, and so forth and so on. So um, Matthew wants us to widen our eyes a little bit. And so we've looked at three women, and in our final episode, we'll look at the last woman who gets mentioned way at the end of Matthew 1, uh, and her, her name won't be too much of a surprise. But today's name, actually, it's not in there. It's referring to Bathsheba, but Matthew doesn't put that name in specifically, does he? No, he doesn't. Like we read right here in Matthew 1, it says, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So it says Uriah's wife. And if you know your history, and Matthew knew his audience knew their history. Uriah, the Hittite's wife, oh, he means Bathsheba. Um, it's interesting that she's referred to as, it's just implied that her name is there. You know who she is, but they don't name her in the scripture. I thought that was very interesting. I always think that in a way, referring to Bathsheba as Uriah's wife is a way of kind of twisting the knife a little bit for David. Oh, yeah. Because not only did he do something wrong with Bathsheba, as we're going to see when we retell her story, he does something even worse to Uriah. And so I, I think it's almost a way of not letting David off the hook here at all. Once we see Uriah's wife... Oh, boy, a dark cloud comes over this family tree because it's not a very pretty story. Now, I consider the book of Chronicles to be David's highlight film. Yeah. Um, this doesn't make it into the highlight film. Right. This is actually the deep down and dirty and broken story of Bathsheba and Uriah and what happened to them. 
And Matthew knows that when he says her name or he alludes to her, that it's going to be kind of a taboo subject. It's going to be something you don't want to talk about in Sunday school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just need to tell a little bit about Bathsheba. She is definitely one that needs to be mentioned here. And she is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which we said. Eliam and Uriah the Hittite were both a part of David's army at one time. And this story begins in First Samuel 11. In the spring, at the times when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Man, when they set this story up with when kings go off to war and David doesn't go off with them, you already know something is up. (laughs) And I don't know why David doesn't go. The Bible is not clear on that. I mean, maybe he was just confident in the fact that, oh, yeah, I I got some trained guys. They're going to take care of it. Or if he just got overconfident, I don't know what it was. But he's supposed to be fighting. It's a fighting season. He's not there with them. And the old saying goes, the idle mind is the devil's playground. (laughs) Um, He is actually having some idle time, and he happens to see Bathsheba. If he had gone to war, we might not even be reading something like this. We might have a whole different story. No. And, you know, the the great preacher Haddon Robinson had a well-known sermon on this, Daryl, and he speculated that David was sort of having a midlife crisis, that he was just bored. I mean, it used to be fun to go out and fight wars and, you know, but now he doesn't even want to do it. He's just kind of bored. Uh, he's kind of having a midlife crisis. So send Joab, send the army out. Ah, eh, I'll just stay here, right? Well, you know, it's sort of a midlife crisis can be a very bad time for temptation because yeah. you're looking for something to spice up your life, right? He's bored. Well, there's a pretty woman next door, naked and, and beautiful. And so I, I want to find out who she is. And he does. And he invites her over and they end up sleeping together. So what's interesting to me about this is that David's breaking commandments. Mm, the left very, and right. <laughs> the very commandments that he writes so many songs about, that he sings a lot of songs about. And you see that, you know, he struggles with sin just like everyone else. Even though he's a man after God's own heart, he struggles with these sins. He commits adultery with this woman Bathsheba. He covets his neighbor's uh, wife. Mm-hmm. That's something you're not supposed to do. You're breaking the commandments. The scripture says if you're guilty of one, you're pretty much guilty of all of them. And I hate when some people try to portray Bathsheba as some sort of temptress or some sort of seductress because it doesn't portray her in that way. Nope. But if we're actually honest about this, this is the pain of this verse. There is a power dynamic. This is the king and he's coming to this woman and maybe she has a ability to refuse him. Maybe she doesn't. It could have costed her life. There are some people who have said, at worst case, this could be a rape. And then there are some, at, at best case, even if there could be one, is there's adultery where both are consenting. Either way, it's a brokenness that can't be ignored. Right. And they're not equals. I mean, David is the king. I mean, there's a power dynamic. She, she couldn't say no. Whether it was a rape, uh, it was you know certainly something that she was not really in a position to slap David's face and say, get away from me, you know. No. So it's on David. I mean, there's no question. The story is, as you say, the book of Chronicles cleans up David's story. But Samuel here, 2 Samuel, 
gives us the straight scoop and it isn't it isn't good for David. It's an R-rated story, like the story with Tamar that we began this series with. It's not the kind of thing you tell little kids. It's not the, a Sunday school or vacation Bible school story, but it happened. And Matthew at least thought, I cannot delete from Jesus' family tree the fact that this happened. It would be easy to do, right. but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to include Uriah's wife and put it just that way so to throw a spotlight on that. And some of the reasons why he did that, we'll look at in just a moment. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. Part four of a five-part series of Advent based on Matthew 1, most of which is the family tree of Jesus. And today we've gotten to the fourth woman who gets mentioned. After Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, we get Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. There's pride and adultery and coveting and power dynamics going on here between the king and one of his subjects. Uh, This is deep. Yes, it is. And and the plot thickens because she says those two words, I'm pregnant. She sends a message to David to let him know that. And now his response after he knows that he has had an affair, this is going to become a kind of a secret that's going to get out here in about nine months. So he has to decide what is he going to do? Because it's pretty hard to hide a belly poking out when you're pregnant. Very hard to hide. And the other problem is um, what folks back in ancient Israel didn't know about how babies get made could fill a book. But They could count, and they knew Uriah had been gone for too long for it to be his child. So if Bathsheba turns up pregnant, everybody knows it's not Uriah. They may not know right away it's David, but they know it's not Uriah. And so David has to figure out a way that maybe people would say, oh, well, sure, Bathsheba is pregnant. It's Uriah's kid. How can I do that? So he goes about trying to cover this up. And so we see in the verses here where this conspiracy begins to cover up the sins. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So it's interesting that, that go walk home and wash your feet thing. That's kind of a euphemism for, oh, go ahead, go sleep with your wife. Enjoy your time home. Take a little break from the war. But Uriah is so focused on being faithful to serve God's army that he won't go home. Right. And David's all business at first. Oh, yes. Well, Uriah, I sent you because <laughs> I, I need a brief. Yeah, going? yeah. How about, how about them tigers? And uh, <laughs> how's the war going? I see. Thank you. Well, thank you for the briefing. Uh, now I'll go on home to that pretty wife of yours. Okay. Uh, no, no worries. Uh, but Uriah won't do it. And you know, Daryl, we're beginning to see already here something that is a complete truism in politics. 
the cover-up is almost always worse than the crime. Yeah. The crime can be bad. Watergate was bad. But if it ended, ended there and if they had just come clean, it probably wouldn't have cost Nixon the presidency. But the cover-up. The cover-up killed it, yeah. um, right? So the cover-up's always worse than the crime, and boy, that's going to end up being true here. And Uriah is such a good guy that he won't go home. He's going to sleep with the servants. He, he's not technically on furlough or on vacation, so he's not going to do what his men in the field can't do. So he, he didn't go home. And, of course, this has got to make David a little crazy, right? Because when you're really feeling guilty, when you really know you've done it wrong, to encounter somebody who's so good and who's doing it all right, it's like, man, now I look even worse by comparison. Yeah, so David is abusing his power to try to make this conspiracy happen. That's the first thing. The yep. second thing is my Bible teacher taught me in, in school that there is a theme of faithful foreigners they always make choices that are better than even the people of Israel. And so we have here Uriah, who is not an Israelite, but he's showing as a model of integrity in this story, I won't go home and sleep with my wife when all my my fellow soldiers are out here fighting. What kind of a person would I be? So he's using his integrity, which I, I believe that also makes David crazy. And it also shows how broken humanity can be. It's one thing to sin, and it's another to cover it up, like you said. Right. Well, it didn't work. And actually, um, we won't read this part, but but David tries again, right? He finds out Uriah didn't go home. He says, calls him back. He said, why didn't you go home? Go home tonight, would you? Please, please. And Uriah's like, no, no, not while my men are sleeping in tents and, you know, you know, ba- eating bad food. I'm not going to go home to a nice home-cooked meal and enjoy my wife while they're out there. I, I can't do it. I couldn't look them in the eyes when I went back to the front if I did that. Okay, this is not going to work. Now you're forcing my hand. So in the morning, David, this is verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it with Uriah. And in it he wrote, put Uriah out front where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. And that's exactly what ends up happening. So David tucks a, a note into Uriah's pocket that contains his death sentence which is really cold. It's like Tony Soprano or some mobster move in the mafia. That's cold. Put the death sentence in his own pocket, send him in, and then you know, basically tells General Joab, hang him out to dry. I want him dead. Don't ask me why. Talk about the cover-up being worse than the crime. That's it. Not only does David sin, but he covers up the sin with the worst sin. I don't even think at that point his behavior where he's not able to even think through, what am I going to do about this baby that's coming? Now he's getting the father, who's supposed to be the answer to why the baby's here, killed. And so that even makes it even more of a problem. So now we need to see that sin and brokenness don't just harm one individual. They harm everyone that's connected to it. Sin and brokenness continue to permeate relationships in different circles of people. And David's behavior in his passage is showing this. And then he gets a report back that Uriah's dead. And so then he says, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. But originally, if he was back in his old self before the quote unquote midlife crisis that you mentioned, mm-hmm. he probably would have been furious to lose one man. But then he lost some men, but then Uriah was dead and he was okay with that because that shows how insidious and how this sin can mess your mind. Yeah. So then he he acts like a nice guy. He goes to Bathsheba and says, so sorry about your husband. 
why don't you come stay with me, right? So now it can look like Bathsheba's baby is David's and it's okay because, you know, it happened after Uriah died, right? And he's just being nice to her. So he, he's being totally fake and he's thinking he's, he's gotten away with it. But I love the last line in verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And that's all the text says. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. I'll say. So when you get so far caught into sin, God has to intervene and do something about it. And that last line, but this thing displeased the Lord, he wants to address this situation. So let's stay tuned and find out just how God does that. Are you struggling to feel merry this Christmas? In the midst of hard times, we find strength and encouragement in God's word. A set of 14 encouraging devotions from today reassure you that even during the darkest of Christmas seasons, you're not alone. Receive Devotions for a Blue Christmas, a free email series and ebook when you subscribe to today at todaydevotional.com slash blue Christmas. I'm Scott Jose with Daryl Delaney, and you're listening to Groundwork and this Advent episode of a series from Matthew 1, David the King, the man after God's own heart, as the Bible says, the best king Israel ever had, second only to his son Solomon, who will be coming up next, has sinned and behaved about as badly as any human being can sin. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He took his neighbor's wife. He had an adulterous affair with his neighbor's wife. And when it didn't work to cover it up through some normal ways, he took the extreme step of murdering her husband so that he could then be nice to Bathsheba, take her into the palace, and then the baby would look like it was David's. And it was, but it would look legit. This is how the man after God's own heart behaved. Well, he probably should be called a mess after God's own heart yeah. at this point um, because this is messy. And Matthew does not glaze over the fact that that is messy. And again, we just I think it's very, very hopeful for people who have messy lives and messy stories that in spite of the brokenness and in spite of the sin and pain, God can still use and intervene in this situation. It reminds me of one of my favorite TV shows that I used to watch called Intervention, where there's this guy who or a girl who happens to have a problem, an addiction or some sort, and they're destroying their own lives mm -hmm. with it. And then in intervention, they have a psychiatrist or a therapist and they have the family. They all surprise this loved one and say, hey, listen, I know you thought you were going to the mall, but you actually are going to be intervened with right now. We love you. We see you destroying your life. We want you to stop. And please please change. So they beg and plead with this person to try to get them to make better decisions and change their lives. And I feel like in this situation, if that person doesn't get that intervention, then that life will continue in the wrong direction. And I think that we need to understand that our lives are sinful and broken. And if God doesn't intervene, then we're going to be on that path. Exactly. And the problem with, you know, situations like that is we're often unaware of it. We need somebody to intervene. We need somebody to knock us between the eyes and say, wake up. God does that with the prophet Nathan. So we move into the next chapter, 2 Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David, and then Nathan tells David a little story. 
When he came to him, Nathan said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Zinger. Boom. <laughs> Boom. And so I think that this story is very creative because, number one, God's intervention was to send Nathan to speak to David as one of God's messengers. But because Nathan and there's that power dynamic again, Nathan, the prophet is going to David, the king. So he can't just literally walk up and say, hey, you're wrong, because he might lose his head literally over that. Right. So he has to create this parable so that David can figure it out. But then he turns it around and says, oh, wait, that's you. So then he is convicted by his own words. He deserves to die. He deserves to pay four times over. And he doesn't realize he sinned against the Lord until that story concludes. So then he says that in verse 13. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. And he realizes it's a turning point where he needs to come back. Sometimes we need God to arrest our attention and convict us or we wouldn't come back. I, I think that's true, Scott. I liked how Frederick Beekner retold this story once where David gets all huffy about, you know, the poor little lamb. You know, I mean, he's killed a human being. David has murdered right. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. But he's all up in arms about this little lamb now because it's kind of cute, you know, in the story. And Beekner says, you know, at this point, the prophet Nathan handed David a hand mirror and said, uh, the rich man, David. That's him. You know, the one in the crown. <laughs> you are the man. Yes. So, yeah, eventually David says, I've sinned against the Lord. But Nathan goes on to predict that there are going to be consequences to this. Yes. David's going to be forgiven, right? He's going to stay king. But Nathan predicts that there's going to be major trouble in David's own household. The child that Bathsheba is bearing right now is going to die. She'll have another one who will be Solomon. But yeah. child's going to die. You're going to have a rebellion in your household. That'll happen later with Absalom and mm-hmm. Amnon and all that ugliness. You did this in secret, but I'm going to punish you in public is what God says. So it's a very, very difficult story. And, you know, Daryl, I'm, I'm imagining – People listening to this episode, uh, it's in December. Christmas is probably a week off or less. Or you can imagine us as pastors on the fourth. We did a series on Matthew. I did do this one time. And you're preaching on this on the fourth Sunday of Advent, the last <laughs> Sunday before Christmas. Christmas could be two, three, four days away. And you're telling this ugly story of sin. And people are thinking, it's Christmas. It's sparkly, silent night. You know, it came upon a midnight clear. Why do we have to? see Bathsheba and David and Uriah. Um, well, the reason is because there's no reason to celebrate Christmas if we can't honestly look at this kind of brokenness, which is why Jesus came. This brokenness, like you mentioned, Scott, it's all over Scripture and it's all over our lives. It shows why we need a Savior. Yep. So 
I love the fact that the Bible is not going to shrink back when there's drama. There's drama. It starts in the book of Genesis, right? In chapter three, yeah. we got some brokenness and history. Humanity is always going to have a level of brokenness in it. When I tell my story, there's brokenness in it. When you tell your story, there's brokenness in it. And God sees our sinful state and our pain and our sin, our problem, and decides to intervene. He says, I'm going to save them. I'm going to help them. He brings his son into this picture. We can't even have Jesus birth without some brokenness in his own genealogy. So that right there should let you know that even when you look at this and you look at the names, the names Tamar, the names Rahab, the main names Bathsheba, when you look at these names, there's always going to be a story behind it. The story includes human brokenness, but that's why we need a savior. And that's the advent of what we're looking for. We're looking for Christ to come back. We're looking for him to help us. Exactly. We are living between two advents, we always say. Advent looks back to the first advent, the first arrival of Jesus, but it also looks ahead to the second advent, to the second coming of Jesus. And that is going to be the time when all will be made well, all of our sins will be forgiven, all of our brokenness will be healed, all of the brokenness we see in this story, which happens over and over, Jesus came to forgive it all. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We hope you'll join us again next time as we conclude our study of the women in Jesus' genealogy by looking at Christmas hope in the story of Mary. Connect with us now at groundworkonline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information and to find more resources to encourage your faith. We're your host, Daryl Delaney with Scott Jose. Our recording engineer is Dot Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacob. <laughs> <laughs>